Uh, welcome everybody to Delta Podcast. So our second podcast this week continues with the theme of nutrition, but moves away from maintaining muscle mass to making weight in combat sports. So the topic itself has received quite a lot of attention due to the potential dangers associated with rapid weight loss prior to competition. So we're really glad to have an academic who also works in this field with combat sport athletes with the aim of this podcast really to give you a combination of academic thoughts and coupled with some practical applications. So I'd just like to welcome uh, this week's guest. So we've got Joe Matthews in this week. Hi, Joe. Hi, Mike. Pleasure. Good, thank you. So just to let you know a little bit about Joe. Uh, so Joe's currently a PhD student in the Musculoskeletal Physiology Research Group at Nottingham Trent University. And his current research focuses or is focusing on the physiological roles of carnosine and beta-alanine in healthy and type 2 diabetic muscle. In addition to this, uh, Joe's a full-time lecturer on the sports therapy program at Birmingham City University. And alongside all of that, he works as a sports nutritionist with combat sports athletes and an active researcher. Recently, he published a systematic review looking at the magnitude of rapid weight loss and weight gain in combat sports. So we'll make a start. So we've got quite a few topics, hopefully, that we're going to get through. Uh, so firstly, Joe, sort of from me, can you sort of let our listeners know uh, what making weight uh, actually is in terms of sport yeah sure so um anyone who's listening who's watched combat sports before so includes things like boxing mixed martial arts mma is one of the big ones um fighters will have to or generally will reduce their body mass in order to compete so the aim of competition is to pit two opponents against each other who are a similar weight um, and they're normally placed in weight categories for that and the idea being if you have people who are similar similar body mass, then it should equalise their physical qualities and make it a fairer match-up when it comes to their technical skills. Now, one of the problems is a lot of athletes don't walk around day-to-day -day at the weight in which they compete at, so they will generally diet, and it's that process of dieting that we call making weight. Um, so they'll diet down to hit the target weight for their weight category um, before they can compete. So there's a, there's a few a few components that make up this process. So you can broadly split it up into three periods, which is gradual weight loss, which will be your normal dieting over a period of weeks. There then might be something called rapid weight loss, which is a very quick change in body mass in the final 24 hours or in the final five days. And then after they weigh in on the scales, and you've probably seen some of these, these weigh-ins on TV before because they're normally publicised, they weigh in on the scales and then they'll have a period of time between that weigh-in and the competition itself with which to regain any weight that they've lost in the in the previous gradual and rapid phases. Yeah, so, so just for the sort of listeners um, who may be on that familiar with this whole concept of having it sitting around at a higher mass and then rapidly getting to a lower mass and then going back up as heavy as they possibly can potentially, what, why why is that sort of done? What is that is that just a inherited combat sports where people walk around heavier or is there any particular reason why they might want to train heavier? Is there any sort of evidence to say that's a positive thing to train heavier? Or yeah, is a, a bit of altitude as in, you know, sort of depending on varying their living conditions to their training conditions and so on? It's a good question. I think for, for most athletes, the weight at which they weigh in at wouldn't be sustainable to stay at all year round. Yeah. Um, 
So if you see the pictures of, of fighters on the scales, the, the moment they weigh in, they're normally very lean, very low body fat. So they're, they're aiming to maximize their composition. Um, now, that appearance on the scale was probably not best for performance, which is why they need to restore some of the lost mass either side of that and before they can compete. But the idea being that if you, or the, so the theory goes, if you can reduce your body mass and then uh, let's put a scenario. So say that you compete at 70 kilograms um, and you would normally walk around at 75 kilograms. Um, if you can diet down a little bit and get leaner so your body fat's low and then some athletes might dehydrate also a couple of kilograms, um, then by the time that they restore that body mass, they can actually be a heavier athlete who has more absolute power and strength compared to an opponent who might be competing closer to the weight category limit. Yeah. So the, the aim there is this, so there's twofold, I guess, to answer your question and that it's, it's probably not sustainable to stay at their competition weight all year round, for, certainly for most. And then there's also, um, um, there's also trying to leverage some sort of physical advantage against an opponent as well. And the other side to that coin is you might not necessarily be looking for an advantage yourself, but you could be looking to avoid being disadvantaged against an opponent who you know will regain weight. Yeah, I got you. Got you. But we see, we clearly see a, certainly in some of the sort of boxing fraternity, we tend to see what looks or appears to be quite a lot of weight loss. So it's not just a case of, you mentioned sort of 75 to 70 kilograms, which in itself probably is quite a lot of weight loss, but but much more than that. So their off season is is a lot heavier than five kilograms, which probably makes it a lot more difficult to diet down and maybe some of those practices we're going to come on to uh, make them seem even more extreme, I guess. Yeah, and it's probably useful to highlight the some of the differences in competition structure as well and difference in sport. So if you've got a sport like amateur boxing where the competitions are much more frequent, the, the athletes will stay closer to their competition body mass. So you might not see some of the dehydration that I've mentioned and I'm sure we'll come on to later as well. Um, but as you move up the professional ranks and as as performances become more, bouts become more infrequent, so you're looking like your professional boxing and um, mixed martial arts, they might only compete once, twice, maybe three times per year. Yeah. Those periods in between the fights um, tend to be uh, tend to be filled with weight gain. And then because that weight has been gained after and in between the fights, then a period of dieting is needed. Whereas the amateur boxers, for example, um, might compete every week or every fortnight so they don't have the opportunity to to increase and reduce as much as as much as some of the other sports yeah so i guess that that potentially is a positive that they don't have to fluctuate as much but is it equally potentially a negative that they they are right on the edge of being at a level which is non-sustainable potentially or is that is that not right so they're 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 having to maintain that lean body mass for a longer, more extended periods? Would, would that be a, a an issue with an amateur boxer potentially? Or Yeah, it certainly can be. I mean, you, could, you can have the, a topic that's spoken a lot about in sports nutrition at the moment is energy availability. Yeah. So low energy availability being a concept where your energy intake doesn't, mean, doesn't meet the needs of your energy expenditure through your sport. So if you've got a, an athlete who's, who's regularly restricting food intake or increasing energy expenditure to stay at a given weight that has its own has its own potential harms um, but having said that it tends to be better in amateur boxing at moving 
upper weight if they're struggling to to reach the competition weight regularly. Uh, they tend to be a little bit more receptive to that. I think it's more um, it's more normal for the culture of that sport to compete at a weight that's easier to achieve. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So I guess if they're if they're maturing, say if they're a young boxer, for example, then they're naturally getting heavier. Is is that a concept? Then they just automatically go up a weight class because of that, so there wouldn't be any restrictive. But equally, I'm sure there'll be some who would want to stay at that lesser weight because they might have been reasonably successful at a a lighter body mass, so they'd want to stay in there for a little bit longer. Yeah, definitely. So there's going to be a trade off in particularly in in the adolescence with moving to a weight that's best for health. Um, and hopefully performance as well, but also potentially moving away from a weight where you've had success in competition. Um, and a lot of those decisions are dependent on the the coach and the staff around the athlete doing the, the thing that's best by them. But it, it might well mean that um, the achievement in competition momentarily dips. Certainly in, in the initial transition, when you get used to facing a slightly different opponent, maybe a different height of opponent or different reach. Um, but it tends to then over time, once they adjust to that new style, you, you, you tend to see performance levels pick up. Yeah, and I guess that's sort of that concept that we often hear people just saying it's their natural weight, that they're, they're sort of fighting at their natural weight level. That, that's the sort of thing I, you know, I hear with people who are in boxing. That person is now at their natural weight that they should be fighting at rather than trying to struggle to get to a, a lighter a lighter body mass, I guess. So if we're probably going to move on to the sort of methods and magnitudes of how people get there then. So if you want to we can have a bit of an insight on how this all takes place it'd be great yeah so i said this this process of dieting beforehand so you've got the gradual period which is normal sort of calorie restriction and an increase in energy expenditure um and that's not an awful lot different from what normal dieting would be in that you're trying to lose a modest amount of weight per week the aim primarily being to reduce body fat and maintain muscle mass because that's going to help with performance um, but it's really into those final few days if if the athlete has a lot of weight to lose or is trying to drop to a category that's probably lower than they should be at. Um, it's in those final few few days we see some of the more harmful methods used. And um, we can talk about some of the amounts of body mass, but some of the techniques um, can, can include training in rubber suits or plastic suits to try yeah. and increase sweat rate. Um some of the, the other common methods might include sauna use and an attempt to, to dehydrate. Things like hot baths as well and fluid restriction. And it's um, and the, the less prevalent methods but are still used, you might see things like spitting or use of laxatives to try and clear um, mass from the bowel yeah. or diuretics to further increase dehydration as well. So we've got everything from methods that are probably safe and to induce a bit of mild dehydration up into methods that have certainly have the potential to be unsafe and methods that have been implicated in in the unfortunate deaths of some fighters as well yeah definitely and and i guess if we talk about magnitudes then this is this is quite a lot of mass to drop isn't it, in a short period of time so it's not it's not just an insignificant amount it's a fair <clears throat> amount of mass that people can actually drop yeah, so if we look at if we look at averages, if you were to get a big, uh, a large group of athletes together and ask them how much they lose in those final few days, um, it's going to vary quite a lot between sports. But if we focus on the sports that have the biggest problems, which is normally um, boxing, mixed martial arts, and judo as well, can be can be brought into that for some types of competition. If we take a big group of those athletes, the average that they lose might be around five percent of their body mass. So 
again, if you use the example from before, if you're competing at 70 kilograms, you might dehydrate or rapid weight weight loss. Um, 5% would be from 73.5 kilos down to 70 kilos. Um, but that would be the average. So you've got some athletes in there who might only dehydrate a couple of percent, which is probably quite manageable. But at the other end of the spectrum, you've got some who might be reaching sort of eight, nine, 10% of body mass that they're losing primarily through dehydration. Yeah. So for our 70 kilo athlete, that's now taking them down from sort of 77 to 70 in the space of three or four days. Yeah. And and the associated dangers with that have, have clearly been documented, but in terms of, I just picked up on two meta-analysis this morning in terms of dehydration, that classic 2% has a cognitive impairment but certainly the two papers are briefly looked over <clears throat> so meta-analysis decrease aerobic anaerobic exercise performance muscular strength and endurance alongside cognitive problems so even just a small drop seems to have a fairly big effect but i guess we we don't know when it comes to the fights when we record win and loss where it's purely down to their rapid weight loss or not do we which is i guess always going to be a contentious issue yeah and the um one of the aims of the, the athlete, if they do undergo this process of dehydration, they will be trying to restore as much of the lost fluid and mass as possible before they enter competition. Yeah. Um, and there's been a few studies that have looked at this to see, well, do they still enter competition dehydrated? And some athletes still do. Yeah. Um, and whether that then has a, a performance of a negative performance effect is a very difficult thing to study, actually. Um, we can look at the kind of absolute numbers of win and loss and do people who undergo more weight loss um, tend to have more success yeah but it's a really messy thing to tease out and the the best guess we have at the moment or the what we can take from the existing data is that grappling sports where you're fundamentally trying to use your own mass and size against your opponent so things like judo wrestling and some styles some fighting styles in mixed martial arts, there might be an advantage of being slightly bigger and having that that higher mass and higher frame, larger frame. Um, but in striking sports, so boxing and taekwondo, where you're trying to keep your opponent away at reach and you're you're moving around your own mass as opposed to moving your mass on them, there doesn't seem to be an advantage. Now, I say both of those things with a little bit of... Um, of uncertainty because we don't really have good data on that but if yeah. i had to, there, there might be a slight advantage to being bigger in grappling sports and there probably isn't in striking sports is what we know yeah, so that rapid weight gain is really important when it comes to shifting someone else's body mass on a mat or wherever it may be so they they're going to lose a lot of mass and then try and put a a large amount back on in that time between that way and then their fight which is which has come to a few change in the rules hasn't it and laws of certain um, sports which have tried to limit that happening I guess yeah so we, we spoke a little bit about the weight loss the other side of the coin is the weight gain um, and you're absolutely right and it's taekwondo and judo now operate what's called a, a weight regain limit in that the, the weight you weigh in at so they hold their their weigh-ins on the evening before competition yeah but on the morning of competition they'll then have a re-weigh and that's random, so not every competitor is chosen. But the ones who are chosen can't weigh more than 5% above the weight category limit. Yeah. So the aim there is to try and 
de-incentivize large weight loss because you then are, are penalized if you regain it. Yeah, but I guess our, our, some of the listeners might not know that they're not actually fighting in that weight limit anymore than are they? They're actually heavier than, so they're weighing weight and they're fighting weight. Could that push them into a different actual weight category? Yeah, so in, in that instance, if you're, if you weigh in right on the cusp of your weight limit, which is what most athletes will do, by the next morning, I mean, if you've even gained 1% of body mass, you're now in the higher weight category. And I think that's, that's quite normal. I think the problem is when you have athletes who are jumping two or three categories. So I've, this was something I, should, I actually found in, in some data I collected myself a few years ago, and that one athlete was able to put back on enough mass to compete three weight categories higher. Incredible. And what sport was that? And that was in mixed martial arts as well. And a, a similar thing was shown again in mixed martial arts in a nice case study as well that was um, that was done by some of the researchers and practitioners at Liverpool John Moores University. And it was exactly the same that the the weight gain probably probably put the athlete three weight categories higher come the actual competition. Do we know the result of that particular bout or? Uh... Um, uh, I know the, the one that I was involved in, the, the fighter one, I don't know about the other one, but it's a good question. I think you've, yeah. there's a, I mean, you've, you've then potentially got two, two athletes who are very different sizes and strengths, particularly if the opponent doesn't undergo large weight loss and weight gain and sticks to, not necessarily sticks to the rules, but maybe comp- competes at a weight that is closer to their normal body weight. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I guess we said before that we those confounding values. We don't know if it was a if it was a takedown where mass might have been important. If it was a strike where being quicker might be important, there less so therefore less mass might be important. I guess there's a whole heap of things that we probably need to know to factor in before we make that judgment. To say just because they went up three weight categories, that was the reason why that individual won. Yeah, which definitely. makes it really hard to to say it's bad practice or not. I guess. No, you're absolutely right, and it's it's really difficult with. In combat sports, there are so many different ways in which a bout can be won, yeah. um, and even more so in mixed martial arts, where you have different styles of styles of fighters. That to try and tease out the weight gain or the weight loss as the main factor is really tough. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we've um, we, we we sort of cover this gradual um, weight loss, the rapid weight loss, and then weight gain. I guess it almost leads us on to probably a bit of the dangers of doing so, which we've probably talked about. Ultimate danger being. You don't make it out of there alive and, and any other associates. So we just sort of try and cover a few of those dangers of practices of doing these rapid weight <coughs> loss and weight gain. And that would be quite nice, I think, to move on to. Yeah, so the, the dangers, then, and there are many dangers involved with this process, particularly if it's a large amount of weight loss in those final few days. But they mainly stem from the dehydration. So yeah. we can lose a small amount through dehydration and health is generally well preserved and we might lose some some small performance aspects but with the amount of weight loss that we're talking about here i mean particularly when we get into sort of those eight nine ten percent and above and extent of the dehydration can be fatal and the probably most famous cases of this are in 1997 three wrestlers in the us um unfortunately died within a three-week period and these were all dehydrated related deaths as a result of trying to make weight for competition. Yeah. Um, immediately after that, the NCAA who, reg- who regulate 
collegiate sports in the US did put in some new rules and regulations to try and prevent this from happening. But even in the last seven years, so from 2013 onwards, we've had half a dozen deaths elsewhere in the world, um, which are all directly attributable to dehydration um, induced as part of the, the making weight process. And we're, this is this is not an issue that affects any single sport. This is a range of combat sports, and this is a range of, of countries across the world. Um, so that's the ultimate risk. One thing, one other thing is quite an, a lot of news stories now, and probably most well publicised in the US and the UFC uh, mixed martial arts promotion, is fighters having problems during the making weight process and then not actually competing. And being taken to hospital with with kidney issues is, is something that quite commonly arises. So, um, yeah, there's there's it's not a it's not a light-hearted issue by any means, and there's a serious risk involved. Yeah, and of course, of course, with the money involved as well, it makes it makes it a lot difficult for these athletes. So they have to make that way to the way, and don't they? So if they if they're not, I they don't get paid. And if that's their that's their livelihood, it might be slightly different in the amateur arena i guess but certainly from a professional perspective if you're if you're having to fight you need to make that 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 sort of way in weight don't you otherwise you're not fighting the fight will get pulled or you get pushed to these extreme practices which puts you in a in every high risk of having a fatal episode which is unfortunate but clearly happens yeah there's a there's an awful lot of pressure once that kind of contract signs and the fights agree there can be an awful lot riding on that um and I certainly sympathise with the athletes in that position under the pressure to to meet certain weight thresholds. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I, th- I think for me, one thing I struggle I struggle to get my head around sometimes is I think we all understand the inherent risks of, of combat sport. So you're being pitted against an opponent who, in most sports, is trying to cause damage to you in order to win. Yeah. So we, we know there's a health risk from competition, but the bit I find difficult to, to get my head around particularly when when some of the tragic stories come out or another fighter loses their life, is just that the risks are involved even getting to that point. As I think the the risks are even greater in just getting to the competition rather than actually the competition itself. Yeah, yeah. because if they've managed to rehydrate and put some mass on, maybe there's less issue than those those practices to get them there in the first place by dropping all that that water we're talking about, the dehydration, which is obviously a problem. and I guess in the NCAA, it's been it's been fairly well known, hasn't it? Those those practices of of saunas, of and, and even from my experience, certainly of people training in black bin bags, you know, just to lose mass would be common. It's not uncommon for people to do so without maybe understanding the risk, or maybe they do understand the risk, but the the idea of fighting has a greater hold than their their actual health, which is a bit of a problem to to come to terms with. I think which which sort of moves us on maybe to how we do it safely, which hopefully the purpose of the podcast gives you those, gives our listeners the insight on what this making weight is, the methods of doing so, and then how maybe you do it safely. And we're lucky that you're a practitioner who, who does this as well. So it's not just out of a textbook on here, some things you could try. You've actually done this with a, a sort of wide range of athletes. So it'd be nice to hear without giving too much away of your, your skill, I guess, on how you actually do that for those particular athletes. So it'd be nice to to give us tips on how that's done i uh, know i'm i'm happy to give everything away and share share my approach and hopefully that will that will only make it safer and easier for other athletes Brilliant. um but i think i think one of the most important things 
in coming into combat sports is to understand the culture um, bef before anything, before you start trying to prescribe appropriate nutrition to make it safer, you have to understand the culture. So a lot of the process of, of dieting and making weight is ingrained from the youngest years of competition. And there are case reports from, again, a few different countries around the world of children as young as four and five years old who have, have changed their body weight to, to compete. So when we're trying to unpick that amount of history in the sport, it's, it pre presents its own challenges. Um, and part of the process is that uh, some athletes think that they have to undergo this severe dieting and, and weight regain um, in order to be seen as a professional in the sport. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So in almost if they don't make themselves suffer beforehand, then they then haven't earned the right to compete. Now, that's not that's not everybody's opinion, but it does exist. Of course. So the, before we even start looking at the right nutrition, you have to understand what that what that own athlete's motivation is and what their own barriers to to doing it a different way are. And I think what I'd love to, what I'd love to be able to say is that well we can just educate people and show them a better way to do it and they will do it but we generally find that education alone is is pretty unsuccessful if we we can give out leaflets we can tell people about the dangers and the risks um, but education by itself we've got a good few decades of of research now that education alone isn't enough to change things now there's some nice stuff again I'm going to give another shout out to the guys at Liverpool, John Moores, who've, who've done some work in this area and now looking at beha behavior change models. Yeah. Nice. Um, and this is mainly some of Dan Martin's work in jockeys, but I think there's some, there's some good overlap here for, for combat sport athletes. And rather than just the education of saying, well, there is a better way to do that. Here are the risks is to actually understand if the athlete's capable of, of um, taking this information on board and has the skills to do it. And then if they have the motivation and then changing the environment around them to make it easier. Yeah. Once you're able to do those things, which I think is the hard bit, the actual nutrition approach itself probably is a little bit more straightforward. So, and again, my, most of my more recent work has been professional MMA. So they might only compete three times a year and you've got longer in between each each fight to reduce body weight if you need to. Yeah. Um, and part of the process does start with a longer fight camp. So rather than trying to crash diet to the to the competition weight in four weeks, we'll generally try and start at about eight or ten weeks beforehand if we can. Yeah, good. And those those first nine weeks are a normal gradual dieting, no surprises nutrition wise, it's lots of food volume. So lots of, of vegetables and and fibre and protein to try and help with appetite as well and then we gradually taper down um, energy intake through reducing carbohydrates and fat but still ensuring that they have suitable carbohydrates to fuel performance um, because these guys will train right up until the final day and a full-time a full-time athlete's probably training around 20 to 24 hours a week as well yeah so that's the main that's the main kind of gradual weight loss approach um, yeah. when it gets to that final week the most important thing is to not leave yourself too much to do because um, if you get to seven days before the weigh-in or six days before the weigh-in and you're 10% over the weight limit then there is there is no safe way to to reduce that body weight there's always going to be some risk yeah. 
so there's there's practical guidelines now. I mean, in an ideal world, that there wouldn't have to be any rapid weight loss at all. So we, we could just gradual diet down and we'd pretty much be at the competition weight. And I think that would be the best thing. But that's that's probably not pragmatic with the rules that exist because working with athletes who have opponents who will gain weight. Um, so part of their concern and desire is to make sure that they're not disadvantaged and that they carry the same mass into, into competition as their opponent. Yeah. So we'd aim to get to that final sort of six, seven days before with body weight being about 5% over the limit. And then we, we can reduce that final 5% quite safely and quite controlled with a few, a few main approaches. So the first one will be um, glycogen depletion. So we'll, we'll reduce the amount of carbohydrates that they're eating. Yeah. And you can only do this. And this is a, this is a mistake I've seen made quite a few times. You can only take advantage of, of this if you haven't already um, drastically reduced carbohydrates too early in the fight camp. Okay. So, so up until this final week, the, the athletes I work with will be on a, a normal carbohydrate intake. Um, so that carbohydrate stored in the muscles as glycogen. Um, glycogen is bound to water. So a, a rough equation is that for every gram of glycogen you have, every gram of carbohydrate you have stored, you've probably got about three to four grams of water. Um, so for somebody who's around 70 kilos, as we come into that fight week, we've probably got about a kilo and a half to two kilos of glycogen weight that we can reduce there. Yeah. Um, and we do that in those in a in just low carbohydrate diet for sort of two or three days is sufficient to to reduce that. Um, so that will take care of sort of two percent of the body weight. And I said we've got we're aiming to reduce five percent. Um, we'll reduce fiber intake. Uh, in roughly about 48 hours before the weigh-in and what that can do is reduce any sort of gut content from um, from previous fiber intake and that can take that can take care of, of about one percent of body of body mass loss so then we've still got two percent to go and um, part of that will come from being on a lower calorie intake anyway in that final week so we have got a normal energy deficit. So there'll be a little bit of fat loss and a little bit of muscle loss. Yeah. And if that doesn't quite get to the 5% number, then we might use a, a really mild amount of dehydration, sort of a 1% to 2% to, to make up the rest of the of the weight. Yeah, and, and how would that be done? What's the normal practice for, a, for the safest small amount of dehydration? Would just be an extended training time of something or would it be any other method that we'd probably use yeah so there's a couple of options and i tend to go because we're talking a small amount i mean we're trying to minimize the the health risks as much as possible i generally go with whatever the the athlete prefers and makes them feel most comfortable because the last thing we want to do is 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 introduce or discomfort or distress at this late stage so um for the people i've worked with that generally might mean and a little bit of exercise on the bike um so we've got active dehydration or if we look at passive dehydration it could be sat in a hot bath for, for sort of 15 or 20 minutes yeah but relatively st stress-free environment isn't it so just sat on a bike for an extra whatever it may be at the end of the session or in the morning wherever just to lose that bit of mass wouldn't be any particular detriment to their performance we would we'd probably say no and not if you've got adequate time after the warm-up um after the weigh-in sorry to 
put on replace those lost fluids and and on some of the um refuel with carbohydrate intake to restore that glycogen what what you might see sometimes and some of these are the stories that make the news is that rather than just trying or need to dehydrate one or two percent athletes might be trying to dehydrate six or seven percent so then that that gentle cycle becomes a long cycle with a plastic suit on yeah or the the 15 minute warm bath now becomes a a sequence of baths or a series of baths with with towel wraps in between um so the more there is left to lose the more drastic the method the methods become and then the risks increase alongside that of course yeah so so in terms of if someone who was maybe trying this and not not necessarily from a professional area would you would you sort of recommend that they would practice weight loss beforehand some sometime you're quite a way away from their fight or just in in general, just practice their ability to lose body mass. Would that would that be a you know recommended practice that in in an in an off season you just go? I'm just going to try and lose five percent of my body mass and just see what happens. So what I can manipulate, what I can't, what seems to work for me. Do I like sitting in a bath? Can I tolerate it, or do I just prefer to go and sit on a bike somewhere and pedal for an hour, and with maybe a hoodie on as opposed to a, a full on rubber rubber suit or something? Is that is that recommended practice, or we do we just need to leave it for you guys to? to do properly because not everyone has access to i guess to people that would help them out as much yes yeah, it's, it's a really good question i think i'm i think from from the nutrition aspect my advice would always be it do you need to undergo rapid weight loss at all so yeah. can can you reach the the weight you need to be at through gradual dieting and i think that most athletes probably can yeah. it's just that they don't do enough good quality work in that initial gradual weight loss phase and then they're left with too much at the end to do safely so i think the benefit of of having some professional advice is that you you leave yourself in the best position towards the end and you you don't have to do these things um if rapid weight loss is unavoidable and you need to do it to meet your weight category i'd always set a a a practical limit of five percent yeah um although it's possible to reduce a little bit more and 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 still minimize the health risk, but I would, I would set a practical limit at 5%. Um, and there are some pockets of research showing that, again, probably a little bit more work needs to be done here, but those who have experience with reducing their weight for, for competition, or those who are what we call sort of experienced weight cyclers, are more resistant to the performance, negative performance effects from that process. Okay, okay. So it might be that you can... As I was going to say, that's a big concern, isn't it? If someone thinks they're going to, you've asked them to do a longer taper, is they going to have a performance decrement for doing so? Yeah, definitely. I think, and I think if you're if you're inexperienced in doing this, um, it probably means that you're in either you're making sort of a debut fight or within your first couple of first couple of bouts. And if that's the case, I'd I'd always recommend competing at a weight that's more consistent with your body mass anyway. Yeah, because you're so still learning what five percent of your, what you'd normally walk around with. Yeah, I think so. And, and you're more, <clears throat> pardon me, um, in those uh, in those early bouts, you're more learning your craft and learning the sport rather than there's probably not world titles on the line. Yeah. Um, so there, there might come times where you do have to reduce your body mass and if as the competition level increases. Um, so yeah, if, particularly if you're if you're new to the sport or you're new to making weight, I'd, I would encourage people to stay away from it if they can. Yeah, and just I guess just another thing we spoke about a bit on the last one with um, with Matt as well was 
you spoke about they're having a normal carbohydrate intake generally, so that's absolutely fine, and you just decrease carbohydrates and fats. What about those athletes that are already on a carb-depleted um, nutritional program, for example? If there's, is, is it more difficult for them if they're already following a low-carb, high-fat diet, for example? I don't really want to open up a complete can of worms with who we're talking about, but... <clears throat> In terms of if they're already you know, following a diet that's not, as you say, maybe what you'd have recommended, what what issues might you face with that? And how might you help them out a bit? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely conscious of opening up a can of worms here, so I'll keep it. <laughs> I'll keep it specific to the rapid weight loss phase. Yeah. Um, if your preference is to consume a low carbohydrate diet earlier in the earlier in the preparations in that gradual phase. That's absolutely fine, but you need to be mindful of when you get to the final week of competition, you then can't deplete glycogen stores in the muscle because they'll already yeah. be low. Yeah. So, so you're probably looking at a sort of 1.5% to 2% amount of body mass that you can't reduce acutely. Yeah, of course. Yeah, good. Um, so if you if your preference is to, is to have a low-carbohydrate diet um, when it comes into that final week rather than that limit of 5%, you might be looking closer to sort of three to four percent. Yeah, yeah, good. So again, back to your education. If if people are aware of that and they understand that that rapid weight loss might not be as as easy to get, then it's just a bit of a behavioural change. And to say you you're it's very unlikely with safe practices that you'll be able to do that. So just be mindful that three to four percent is probably your limit in a safe environment, and that's where you need to sit coming into that final seven days. Uh, before you fight i guess yeah and um i've, I've used a, that sort of three to four and, and the five percent limit quite conservatively and um, reed rial who's now at the ufc performance institute in shanghai his phd work um focused around putting out some practical guidelines for for olympic combat sport athletes yeah. and he used a pragmatic limit of sort of five to eight percent so indicating that eight percent might be safe but i'm um, but I think if I think you really do need additional support if you're if you're going to do that because even at the lower the lower amounts of dehydration below the five percent that even I suggested um, can be unsafe if you're not aware of the safest ways to do it. Yeah, and then, and I guess any link with any under underlying condition that you might not be aware of might be a a bit of a consideration for some to think. Well, if I go to eight percent, that does put me into a potentially a more dangerous environment yeah absolutely absolutely and uh, i think even more so for for female athletes as well yeah. um who might have um, water fluctuations throughout the menstrual cycle yeah. is we're then we're then giving percentages that are devised largely on kind of history and experience and data from male athletes yeah. and we've got a as, as there are in many fields of, of sports science and nutrition at the moment, but even more so in combat sports, we've got a real lack of, of good quality data on female athletes. So I'd be far, far more conservative in, in females. Yeah, so in terms of that percentage for females, well, again, there's clearly ways to manipulate that menstrual cycle. But in terms of if, you, if you're working with female athletes, are we still saying that 5% is probably where you want to be? Or we, do we need to move that down a bit again and say you probably need to be sat a little bit closer? Yeah, I'd, I'd be hesitant to even put a percentage on it, but I'd certainly be more conservative. And one of the things you, one of the things you can do for female athletes is just get in the habit of of tracking 
normal, and this is even outside of a fight camp, but tracking tracking normal body mass changes um, throughout a menstrual cycle. Um, So weekly averages can work really well when you can see when um, certain periods in the cycle when you might be holding more water weight than others. And that can be used to help inform a safer approach. But yeah, I think, I think this, this needs to be individualized regardless, but even more so for, for female athletes. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's, that's really useful. We might have to try and get someone on there, uh, on here who can give us a bit more insight into making weight for female athletes. And I guess it doesn't necessarily have to be combat sports, anything that has a, a weight limiter on it, um, probably follows similar issues or certainly for sports where, Potentially, coaches think that being lighter, having less masses, is a positive. So, it might make those flipping comments about losing mass, and then puts people in a situation where they don't know what to do, and they just lose it by sitting in a sauna or taking a bike into a sauna and losing it really rapidly, which again is a fairly unsafe practice. So, I think there's anything else you'd want to add in terms of what we're talking about from making weight in combat sports? Are we? No, I think. I think that's all the major points. Hopefully that gives people a nice overview of those who might be unfamiliar with this process. I guess the the only final point to, to leave on would be that most, most athletes sign up to compete in these sports because they love the sports. They don't necessarily sign up because they want to undergo what could be potential harmful diets. So I think sometimes we can, although competition and success in competition is important, Sometimes, particularly with younger athletes and maybe at the lower competitive levels, we need to step back and take a bit more of a human approach and understand what we're really trying to achieve and what this person really wants from competing. Yeah, so I guess we're we're, we're ingraining quite quite negative behaviour from an early age if they're if making weight is deemed to be normal. I guess for them, isn't it that you you do you you don't want to make rapid weight loss seem to be a normal practice that everyone has to do. It'll just be a little bit of weight loss in the last eight weeks or 10 weeks working with someone like you, which they probably won't even notice, which would be quite a nice behaviour for them to to get into their minds early on, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd echo that statement entirely. I think um, I think it's, it has become normalised. Um, but for anyone who's not involved in the sport who comes across these practices is normally quite shocked, which shows us that it probably isn't a normal thing. We've just become... Um, yeah, yeah we've just become numb to it to some extent yeah Yeah, unfortunately well Joe I'm going to thank you uh, for turning up mate that's been uh, a great chat and I hope our listeners will take out a lot of stuff away for take away lots of stuff there about if they work in either with people who need to drop a bit of mass or just themselves maybe want to drop a bit of mass and see some fairly sensible ways of doing so so thanks very much mate and uh, hopefully we'll get you on again with some of your PhD work which would be quite nice to talk about so thanks Joe Yeah, that'd be great. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Cheers, mate.